0: Hey, everybody welcome back to X's for podcast the show we take a look at comics mutants magic and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles now I'm Nico and you guys can catch me snickton along on Twitter and Instagram at Nico action that's N I C O A C T I O N and to kill it on this amazing magic Monday with me we have who is the Nathan
1: hello everyone I am the Nathan <laughs> you can find me on <laughs> at the away at Twitter and Instagram where I will be chaos magicking some like toasters and to have- babies with me.
0: I love it. I really genuinely love that because that means we can be only here to discuss one thing, one amazing Marvel hero, and that is the Scarlet Witch. Of course, calling her a Marvel hero is at times questionable, but I think all things sitting where they are, it might be okay to like Scarlet Witch again.
1: Yeah. It's nice because I was a longtime Scarlet Witch fan and then House of M came along and I was like, oh, wait, she just fucking decimated all of you. And kind. Why, why, why? She was so cool. But then they made her likable again. So, yay.
0: I very much agree. You know, I've always been a big Wanda person. And so, like, when my husband heard that she was going to be an Age of Ultron, he, like, tried to bring it to me very carefully. (laughs) And, like, okay, hun, we got to talk about something that's going to happen in the real world. And I have such a great affection for Wanda Maximoff because, you know, I don't know if it's that, like, young queer males tend to code onto female heroes, or if it's just luck of the draw that we love their hot damn fashion. I feel like a lot of us young queers really loved those bigger, larger-than-life Claire Mazons and the Avengers women. And it, it was just really cool to get to finally like this character again.
1: Agreed. Oh, what is it about all of these tragic heroes that a lot of queer youth just drag onto, like uh, so many queer comic stands love? either Jean Grey or if you love Maddie Pryor or you love Wanda you know there's something about these characters or Yana like so many people love Yana and they've got such these these very complicated moral fibers going through them they've got these horribly tragic backstories sometimes comically tragic in some places and (laughs) you're just like wait cool and like also like if you jump to DC I love Donna Troy who's got like the most complicated history of any comic character I've ever heard of so like I don't know I think I think we like complicated women who are really powerful and serve the looks.
0: And I wonder if it's because there's an accessibility of power without the trappings of masculinity, which can sometimes feel exclusionary of a young queer male or non-female identifying young queer person and in getting to see it in this other form, not that all of the masculine forms don't work for us because some of us see Thor and then go to the gym too much. So it's not like (laughs) there's only one kind of way to be a young queer, but for me, I just so completely loved Wanda and I think that's sort of where Billy was inevitable
1: okay he's gay boy yeah, wanda exactly he's gay boy wanda and tommy is by boy Pietro, which is like just pietro <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes yeah only tommy's fun and yeah
1: tommy is fun and pietro is decidedly a not fun character
0: <laughs> at least he's good at something he is good at being
1: awful he is good at being awful and being manipulative of his sister and other women in his life so yeah, well, I-, I guess if there's one thing to be good at <laughs>
0: hey and that's a perfect transition actually. Perfect transition because that's going to come up here but I don't know that I like how it was phrased. So (laughs) we're here to take a look at Who is Scarlet Witch by Steve Orlando with art by Rye Hickman, colors by Brittany Peer, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. And I'm a huge fan of that Scarlet Witch logo. I don't know about you but like I see those letters and those colors. I'm like
2: yes, it's it's her. I do love
1: it because it brings me back to that series where that's from and I'm like that was a really damn good series. That was a really good series.
0: It was a wild ride because I didn't think that where Wanda had gone in the last few years, Marvel would take a chance on her. There was this big idea that everybody said, "Oh, well the comics and the movies are going to stay different forever." And I think one day they realized the comics have to get updated. They just can't stay the way they are. There's too many problematic things written by people who had no right to appropriate those characters and those cultures. And if yeah. you're going to update them, update them in a way that makes the movies work with them.
1: Agree. Agree. I So, obviously, right? You're you're talking about the big retcon, the mutant retcon with Wanda, right? (laughs) I,
0: I yeah you know i don't like it i don't want it i would like her to be a mutant and so but i I understand
1: i would too too. in the mcu it creates a whole new idea past where she doesn't have to be burdened by this character who hasn't been introduced i think in the comics it divorces her from her whole backstory and it actually kind of loses a little bit of richness of her character she doesn't have she's still the descendant of roma but she's not the descendant of a jewish holocaust survivor anymore so that that's a, a negative on that her not being a mutant adds some really bad appropriation issues that they've delved into a lot within the Krakoan era that like you know her being a pretender is definitely about her appropriating mutant culture right her retcon made her a little bit more problematic especially after she decimated mutant kind so at that point she wasn't a self-hating mutant who horribly maimed and killed mutants she was a person who wanted to pretend to be a mutant and dislikes pretending to be a mutant so much that then she decided to destroy Muke.
0: Yeah, that is the sticking point for me as well. <laughs> Like, you know, if she, as the daughter of the mutantiest mutant that ever magnetoed in that moment, did something unthinkable, all right, I don't even know how to process that. Right. If she, as someone being like, I want to be a mutant, I'm a mutant (laughs) now, now no one's a mutant. Like, that's not cute, okay? So, it also comes down to the fact that I don't know how often Wanda has been written by a woman right And I beyond that, don't know how many of her broadest strokes were written by women. You know, I think the reality is, the reality (laughs) is that (laughs) House of M using Wanda as a prop device was born of an era where X2 was still considered like a cutting-edge X-Men movie, and using a Legion stand-in, Proteus stand-in, slash, you know, whatever super being stand-in they needed as a weapon, they thought that doing something like that was okay with Wanda and ultimately no that's why you've got the infinity stones it's why you've got the cosmic cube it's why you have inanimate objects not women women do not exist to birth ideas into stories and that is definitely the hardest part of looking back at Wanda's history and just being like but it, it really wasn't until Leah Williams came in and bravely redefined Wanda's place in the Marvel Universe that we saw a woman really take the reins in a big way.
1: Yeah, so I, I gotta say, like, I do love Steve Orlando's take on Wanda, and he's really not leaned into a lot of the toxic- tropy mess, crazy? Yeah, top, toxic, tropey, crazy parts of her, but, like, Leah writing Wanda was so good to see because she wrote her with so much care. Did did I love how the story went? No, I'm not gonna say I loved how the story went. It was, it was a little all over the place, but I think it was really good to Wanda, and Leah treated Wanda in probably one of the more sensitive ways I've ever seen her.
0: And it's that sensitivity that I think we can expect to see going forward. Wanda is poised to take on a really massive role in the MCU. And with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, it just made sense that Marvel released this Who is Scarlet Witch story. And I don't know that we're going to get Wanda back as a mutant quite as soon as I would like it, but I do have hope. I I hope especially with all of this mutant magic circuit stuff we can find a way to bridge that that idea and do something because it does feel like even if she's still so cool they took a little shine off of her by saying no she's not a mutant and she's not Magneto's kid oh but then but that's how I grew up like <laughs> yeah. So, speaking of growing up, I love cute little bald baby Wanda at the top of this comic.
1: Oh my god, she's so cute in that little panel right there. It's such great art. Uh... Uh,
0: And then just high evolutionary being like, Hello little baby, (laughs) we're going to take over WandaGore. And like... It's just the cutest little thing. Yeah. I mean, the pitchforks and fire, maybe not as cute. But man, they fly through early Wanda life really quickly in
1: this. They do. I think that is on purpose to try to uh, avoid some of the gross stuff.
0: I would have to agree. There is a, a real attractive dexterity being applied to getting around stuff that it's hard to deal with. You know what I mean? Especially right. because... Certain certain writers love certain things more than others. So like Bendis did a lot of Wondagore stuff in his time at Avengers and so I think sometimes the concern is if you go to one thing you'll have to go to the other thing to the other thing to the other thing to the other thing and by not really getting involved in the situation early on just kind of being like oh yeah hi evolutionary oh but then there's Magneto and like that speed works for me.
1: Yeah no 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 it's it's perfect I think to get the gist of Wanda that Steve Orlando is wanting to present to everyone. You don't need to get all of that. I think you just need to go like, hey, cool, this happened, and now this happened, and Magneto came and saved you, and he thought you were mutant, and he brought you in.
0: And I have to be honest, I think the part that throws me off a little bit is that it feels like, oh, by the way, he just tells you you have probability powers, and you're fine. Yeah. It's oh, okay. I mean, I love the story. I It's one of the things we've talked a lot about about these Infinity comics is it has to keep it moving at a pace. So yes. it's not so much that I'm even critiquing the narrative, it's maybe even talking about how how can we go through so much of her backstory, skipping so much, and it not impact her. That's a sign of some weak writing over the years.
1: Yes. I don't envy Steve Orlando having to take this character's history and concisely say it in a way that one presents her still in a positive light Two, one that doesn't drag up all of the horrible shit that's happened and kind of helps break the cycle of trauma that she's been through like because we don't we don't need to rehash that as readers all the time to understand Wanda is a character but we tend to get bogged down in those details and do
0: you know and that's such a such a customer service lesson that you learn so early on like I feel like you know your first day of management training everyone always says okay guys so remember nine out of ten people will talk about a bad experience but only one out of ten people will talk about a good (laughs) experience so you know it gets really easy to be like and that was the time she Karen and that time she Karen and that time she Karen but there's times you just want to be like but there she is being a pretty good hero for all of five seconds that they let her and you know that iconic moment of her Steve Pietro and Clint on the stage I love having it summoned up here because it is so iconic it is so central to the idea of who she is as a hero, standing proudly before the world, it's just such a short-lived idea that Wanda can be okay. So it's nice seeing.
1: Yes, yeah, it's it is really nice seeing it because it was it was it was such an innocent moment for her. As obviously, the character had already been through so much, but she was able to to see that for a hot minute that that life didn't have to be tough. She could be a hero. She could be embraced. She could go out there and try to find herself in the world. Unfortunately, her brother is going to try to. like, like no, you can't date that guy. <laughs> no, but you know, besides Pietro being controlling and overprotective, you know, she really had it really good in those few moments. It's really nice to see, and it's really nice to go back, even though the stories are goofy because they're they're Silver Age Avengers stories. It's really nice to see and go back and see her have go through this process of learning.
0: And speaking of learning, Agatha, I love Agatha Harkness so much, yes. and she looks so good in all of her classic '70s creepy, you know creep chamber haunt horror kind of perfection I love this panel so much
1: yes yes I I love Agatha is such a like obviously now for, because of WandaVision she's going to be brought a lot more into the public view so to say but this version of Agatha is, is so complicated and richly tied not just to Wanda but to the Fantastic Four as well so it's really cool to see that Agatha like brought back and presented I'm like hell yeah also it's always is fine to see
0: T'Chan, who I think you have to say his name like a braying donkey,
1: um,
0: T'Chan, <laughs> right? Right? Because how else are you gonna fucking say it, right? Uh, I don't dude,
2: know.
0: <laughs> dude looks like a Final Fantasy villain. I just think it's really amazing that we go from T'Chan to immediately. Oh, Wanda and Vision get married. Oh, Wanda and Vision have kids. Oh, Wanda loses the kids. House of M. Yeah. What? That's <laughs> seriously like nineteen eighty four to like. Two thousand and four. That's yeah. that's twenty years and five panels. How little happened to poor Wanda for that long.
1: It's tough. There's so many complicated things that happened to her in between that really helped build her character, but those are the big massive strokes. Those are the big massive beats. So um and I love that she's in that outfit that she wore in Avengers West Coast where she basically teamed up with Magneto again and was like trying to kill everybody. So like yeah.
0: Speaking of that panel, I just want to say how much I love the idea idea that there's different kinds of amazing art. And I think the very pen sketchy quality to the shading on Wanda on her knees as she grieves for the loss of her children. Yep, I think it's really cool. Like, I don't think everything needs to look like an Alex Ross painting to be amazing. And there is a sketchy human accessibility to this entire story that I think the art is great. It's
1: beautifully done. It's not like, what you would traditionally consider like oh my god this is great superhero comic book art but it's a different type of art that really works well with this format I think it's very stylized it, it works well with these characters so I, I'm here for it that there's so much emotion in that one little panel where she's just crying into her hands that like you know it may not be the traditional superhero you know artwork that you're looking for but it is validly emotional at the same time I think it works for the story oh yeah
0: a thousand percent because you know she's such a fractured character seeing her rebuild her world through memory is really significant. And I think also significant, I just want to thank Steve Orlando for avoiding so many of her love interests over the years. And just, you know, I didn't need to see that she hooked up with Clint or Doom or Steve. It's completely fine that we stick to primarily Vision. And okay, so (laughs) I feel kind of bad for the Avengers and the rest of the Young Avengers for sort of getting shortchanged out of saving Wanda. <laughs> uh, according to this panel, it was these two 12 year olds. So I'm really <laughs> fascinated.
1: <laughs> I mean, huh. okay. Yeah, that revisionist part has to exist to set up the importance of Tommy and Billy to Wanda, even though they are her fake soul babies from Mephisto like yeah it's very i think you have to set up with wanda in this story the importance of the found family and i think that is what it's trying to do with this and those are her found family
0: yeah you know it's so important that her family always be part of her overall narrative because with how transient they've made the condition of being wanda's family you're her dad no you're not yeah you're her sons no you're not yeah you are sure kind of her dad with and how many half sisters at this point and you know with that sort of situation I feel like that binding force the agency of her choosing her family is one of the ways in which she has been given agency and control over her own destiny.
1: I even love when you go to the next panel there and you've got the Uncanny Avengers during that yeah, arc there to have Rogue there is an important character because they had such a complex relationship in Uncanny Avengers and they had a journey of acceptance toward each other you know I, I thought it was going to be all about like Wanda saying like ew hanged my dad but it's not it's about (laughs) (laughs) it's about rogue at that point embodying the charles xavier's dream and having to you know share the same team space with somebody who basically destroyed the dream by decimating mankind and wanda having to deal with what she'd done and get to a path of sort of like redemption a little bit with rogue and taking the readers on that journey so that was i love that rogue is of all people put there because that was such an important part of that arc
0: i completely Completely agree. It makes so much sense to highlight such an important ex-character who also had such an important role in Wanda's life. I feel like a huge thing that, at that point in particular. I feel like one of these things that these stories are seeking to do, these who-is and primers is like get a bunch of people who you may see with that person in a panel with them real quick because you want that sort of reinforcement that they're part of the greater Marvel universe. And I think yeah. that
1: panel really does a good job for that. It's so crazy how I think Rogue has even become a a great Avengers leader herself at the, at the time but she's become so powerfully intertwined with two really strong powerful Avengers women characters and even a third one through Jan like through Jan mentoring her as the leader of Uncanny Avengers but Wanda Carol and Jan have been so formative to Rogue as character who we wouldn't necessarily think of because Rogue we always think of Rogue as an ex-character and we usually think of you know Rogue's relationship with Distique De- with De- no that's Destiny. the best couple name I've ever heard Distique <laughs> De- oh my god yes <laughs> (laughs) distique that is a perfect couple name for them but mystique and destiny we always hear about those relationships and people wondering about the lack of relationship with Kurt but like Rogue has also developed these strong relationships with these other women that usually especially in the case of Carol and Wanda starting out as antagonists and they became you know friends.
0: I love that perspective because you know at this point in the narrative we just immediately get the last two miniseries that came out like simultaneously that we covered simultaneously unsure which one went in what order? Uh, One actually written by Steve Orlando, the other being the aforementioned Trial of Magneto by Leah Williams. We finally know the order. It's Darkhold followed immediately by Trial of Magneto and, okay, but then it's now. Like, then it's over. And I guess I didn't realize just how little to do in her own story Wanda had until this one shot.
1: Yeah, you know, I think when Marvel decides the direction they want to go, because obviously Wanda's going to be a character they want to use. They want to get that beautiful synergy with mcu you know they've brought the character to a place that's more like the mcu wanda but i think they just need to decide what direction they want to go with the character because they've been a little torn the dark hold coming out at the same time a trial of magneto was so confusing as well written as the dark hold event was wanda wasn't really necessarily the star of it and also like you said in the trial of magneto wanda really wasn't the star of the trial of magneto even though it was a big wanda story it was about her death she did finally get her Redemption with the mutants. It was more about Magneto and it was more about the, in the Darkhold event, it was more about the, you know, the characters that served as the pawns for it. And it was more about Doom. I mean, Doom upstages Wanda half the time in Wanda stories. And while you got to love Doom for it, it's not great for Wanda.
3: But
0: what a great metaphor for the fact that the men that write Wanda always see themselves as more important for using her as a tool, not necessarily any particular man that was not a strike at any of the great comics legends that I love so much. Hey, guys. (laughs) But perhaps if we look a little further back, it is not hard to see that using Wanda as an infinity stone is not exactly fair because you don't just use Captain America as a shield. So it does seem reductive of women. And certainly the fact that she, like many other female Avengers, has been known to move in and out of relationships that don't exactly make sense I have no pro Like, hi, popular slut here. Very proud popular slut. I'm a full-time member of the Popular Sluts Club, and I am all about it. I have no problem with a character choosing to be sexual and physical and romantic and intimate, but Wanda never seems to choose those things so much as falls into a man's lap, and that is- really something I am so grateful that Steve Orlando was capable of leaving out of this story yep. and focusing on the other parts of Wanda's story that don't involve Wanda.
1: It's really nice to see her conceptualized not through as much of a relationship with man. I'm so glad he kept out like, like yes, you have to have the vision in there because that was that, that set up for her children arc. So like, she has to be married to the vision to have the baby's comic reality. So, it's like, what happened. <laughs> it's what happened. So you have to leave the vision in there, but he didn't go into the messy bit about simon Williams. <laughs>
0: oh my god when she brings him back oh my god i <laughs> forgot all oh man that's another love interest i forgot about yikes
1: yeah. yeah so like she almost had this weird like hey cool you're almost like my husband was maybe i want to get with you relationship with simon williams for like almost as long as her relationship with the vision went on you know you've got the the complicated yeah you got the complicated steve rogers clinton barton stuff and then you know it's a, it's a good relationship but you know it, you also didn't get much of a mention of the Jericho Drum stuff, the Dr. Voodoo, and I, I think it's good, because I don't want to see Wanda defined through the lenses of her relationship with Miss.
0: And two men I was really glad to see get very little panel time all things considered. Magneto and Quicksilver, just yeah. Quicksilver has dictated so many of Wanda's stories for so long, being the overbearing controlling brother, that it has made it hard to like Quicksilver in addition to the fact that Quicksilver is a fuck like a full-time professional discount rate diet fuck but he is just the worst and other than that you know he still yet would have been frustrating to see here because it would have been further reminder of just how little role Wanda's gotten to play in her own story as a result of characters like
1: Quicksilver yeah and you know what like I after you were saying that I was like yeah her like holy shit poor Wanda in most of her existence she has been a, a woman character that's been written by men writers who's been written as a pawn of the men in her life and i'm like wow that's just awful like and i think that's also why some of us get so drawn to her because we see we see sometimes people in our life being used as pawn by other pawns as other people you know even jean gray early on was written sort of the same way like used as a pawn by other people if you you know what be it the phoenix force be charles xavier so like these these silver age women like really have had their shit given to them
0: and i want to point out something that you said and tie it into this now. You had said earlier that it was so important that they kind of avoid the problematic uh, interpretation of her Eastern European heritage and I think there's ways in which her Eastern European heritage actually dictated the way she was made a victim of men. She was treated as like chattel and I think they saw her as, like, a performance girl. And, like, it's a really weird situation. I don't think any one man sought out to do anything sinister with right. this character. But a dozen men over the years led to some really unfortunate reinterpretations of the work in a world where we know better than to do some of these things to fictional women.
1: I'm so glad we know better than to do them now, and we are, we're trying not to to do that to these characters any longer
0: absolutely if only we could get all of this business straightened out with the mutant thing i feel like everything wanda would be
1: roses yes i would love to see that there's like an important like a little thing to note when you see that panel with wanda and you know finally your chosen family stands like you know there is one important person who's missing from that pietro's daughter yeah luna's the best but you know i think that's more on pietro than on wanda because poor girl doesn't want to be around her dad so
0: it can't be wanda's job to be a good dad for pietro
1: no Oh,
0: man. Nathan, I have had such an amazing time talking Scarlet Witch with you, as always. She is just such a great character, and our shared love for her is definitely something that makes this so much fun. Is there anything you hope for from Scarlet Witch in the future?
1: I'd love to see her maybe get her own series where she can get a chance to revisit some of these relationships. I'd love to see either her get more agency in those relationships, or just go out there, strike out her own relationships, get another series where it's her and agatha out there just kicking ass you know and not having to worry about any men she doesn't need a boyfriend
0: i completely love that and i can't wait for that myself i hope you guys enjoy this next segment Hey, everybody. Welcome back to a very special episode of X's for Podcast, where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, marvels, and eternals. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N.
1: Hey, everybody. It's Nathan. You can find me online at DeslerAOA. We're on Twitter and Instagram where I'm going to be throwing parties and making Tony Stark forget a lot of things, because who doesn't want to make Tony Stark forget a lot of things?
4: And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at X trying to figure out what is going on in these books.
2: Hello, it's me, Steve, and I am an Eternals fan. You can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A.
5: Hey, what's up? I'm Jake. You can find me comparing Resurrection Engines on Twitter at Omega Sentinel, that's O-H Mega Sentinel.
3: And I'm Kevo, you can find me over on the socials at Kevo Really, that's K-E-V-O-R-E-A L-L-Y, and I am pretty damn lost. I don't know a damn thing about Eternals, so This has been interesting for me. Well, we hope you guys survive the experience, which it kind of turns out has
0: very little to do with your actions and so much more to do with a grand scheme cosmic plan we could not even hope to understand at the outset. This has been such a fascinating take on a famous stable of characters. We are here, of course, to talk about the brilliant reimagining of the Eternals by Kieran Gillen, Isad Ribic, and Matthew Wilson. We're going to be talking about the initial offering, the first trade of the series, which encompasses issues one through six. Now, I want to start off with a little about everybody's relationship with the Eternals. I myself grew up on them. I was lucky enough to have a lot of books from my father, so I was able to read through things and have a strong understanding of a lot of these elements that came together here. But how about you guys? I also did want to mention that these Clayton Cowles is responsible for the lettering and brilliant design of this book before I could possibly forget
1: me and Eternals are like mainly through 80s and 90s Avengers with Cersei with Star Fox who I had to like go back and look up and say like wait why Star Fox not in this book oh because he's a tight eternal not an earth eternal I was kind of doing some of the researches I was learning on this and I was like okay I think I need to go back and read these other eternal series because this fucking rocks although I wonder if the other art in the other eternal series is just horny
4: similarly for me it goes back to the 90s it goes back to blood ties with cersei and dane who is not an eternal but even still cersei and dane in the matching brown bomber jackets
1: yeah she had that beautiful red outfit then too oh just a
4: defining moment it was everything i wanted to be it was everything i wanted out of comics
1: It was the heaviest color palette you could
4: love. Truly. And it just, you know, it gave me a vision for my own future. I'm still, I will be waiting for it in the next Eternals movie. But this was, you know, I was purely an X Men kid. I would get into any other characters through crossovers like that. I became aware of Cersei and I never pulled it together at that age to get super into the Eternals, but it was always just kind of something that I was like Googling about and vaguely aware of. And I would see the characters and know who who an Eternal was or what an Eternal was but didn't fully engage with the backstory until, of course, the iconic Neil Gaiman run which was a lot like this one in that it was a big reset and reintroduction for the characters and a potential opportunity to take them forward in a more, you know, a similar way to the X-Men to make them like a really big line or maybe even the Inhumans. It didn't pan out that way but it was a really fantastic story that cemented my enjoyment of the Eternals and made me kind of go back and read back issues and just always in general root for them
2: similar to TK my first experience with Eternals was Cersei during the Gathering Saga in the Avengers those were some of the very first Avengers comics some of the very first comics in like American superhero comics that I ever read and they will always hold a special place in my heart the Gatherers and the Gathering Saga is just like so precious to me so Cersei and Dane's relationship the crossovers with the Inhumans through Crystal all of that was like so interesting to me I had no idea what any of it was but I never got into the Eternals or read an Eternals comic until pretty recently. It really was just like seeing a lot of Karen Charm's Twitter posts about Thena and the other Eternals that like really got me interested in it, seeing the beautiful Jack Kirby art, the bombastic colors and all the really interesting characters. I love the court intrigue kind of superhero books a lot of the time. And Eternals really gravitated towards me for that reason. And eventually after seeing enough of their posts, I just was like, I'm going to read some this. And I jumped on to the Kieran Gillen run as big Kieran Gillen fan from his other comics. I have been an Isad Rabich apologist and lover since Secret Wars. Just some of my favorite horny Your Thanos art I've ever seen. Nobody draws Thanos's whole deal quite like Isad Rabich. And so much cake. So much cake. Nobody draws anybody leaning back in a chair with their dick out the way Asad Rabich does, and he loves to do that in the series, like, right off the bat with Zurus and later with Thanos, but it's Astonishingly beautiful art The figures are incredible The backgrounds are just stunning And like high sci-fi In a way that has always just like Really excited me And so it was a no-brainer Signing up for Eternals When Eternals number one dropped And I have absolutely loved this series So much ever since So much so that I went and saw The Eternals movie On the premiere night in theaters Really good movie Fantastic stuff And I'm excited to see more of it In the MCU But I'm also really I'm gonna be an Eternals By Kieran Gillen and Asadrovich reader for as long as I possibly can.
5: Unsurprisingly, TK and I have the same jumping on point. Blood Ties was the first trade that I picked up when I was like 10 years old and really falling in love with comics seriously for the first time. Cersei was the one that stood out. She was on the Avengers and it was an Avengers, West Coast Avengers X-Men crossover story. And she went toe-to-toe with Exodus, who in my mind reading that at the time was the big bad mute. He had all of the powers. And there's just like two issues of them fighting toe-to-toe, neither of them winning. It's to a total stalemate. I didn't know what an Eternal was. I didn't really care because I was just like, here's this badass woman exerting some force. I didn't, (laughs) honestly, that was the only Eternal's exposure that I had for most of my childhood. I didn't really follow anything outside the X-Men for a long time. And it wasn't until I started getting more into Marvel history, looking at the artwork of Jack Kirby and seeing like all those zigzags and circles and Kirby crackles and, you know, bright primary colors. Colors, that I started to have a harder look at the Eternals. And I think the next Eternals story or like sort of Eternals adjacent story that I got into was Earth X by Jim Kruger and Alex Ross, which actually the Eternals movie pulls pretty heavily from in what they do with the Celestials. I didn't have a great love affair with the Eternals. I also read that Neil Gaiman series when it came out because it was falling right on the heels of Gaiman's 1602. I jumped on again when Dylan's Eternals started publishing. It seemed like a really solid jump Jumping on point, and he was clearly doing something different, additive but different. This is the thing that I've loved about the subsequent Eternal stories that I have read is that they've added on to a complex mythos and clarified a lot. Whereas my
3: exposure is mostly just hearing Nico talk about things that happen, but not really paying that much attention. I read the first issue of this like five or six lifetimes ago, and then many, many moons later, we saw the movie and now i've read this i still don't feel i have a very tight grasp of i know I, I guess i kind of understand what the eternals are and what their purpose is basically it's it's still a lot there's so much to it i feel like i have a better understanding of thanos now thanks to this arc which is really cool because the movies don't do it they don't give you much and now i really really better understand him his relationship with the eternals i still don't know who harry styles is in relation to all of this but that's okay
2: i'll let, I'll
3: let that <laughs> ride out He's just a weird pervert don't worry about yeah. it it's, <laughs> yeah. it's
2: not gonna be better once you find out
5: they all seem like weird perverts though i'm so surprised they're going back to him he's so problematic they all seem like weird perverts, though. Like, is that just
0: <laughs> when you've been alive so long, you fuck a lot, and um, these these bodies, they're so you know, they're so bulbous in all the right ways, and everybody's just got that delicious spark of crazy, just the yeah. way you want them to.
3: You know, it's funny. I have the opposite of this discussion on a Doctor Who podcast that I work with, where the leader of that podcast is very anti the Doctor being involved in romance because he grew up in classic and felt that wasn't something you do. But I really agree with you and I think that's something that more and more writers are thinking about as you know, the world of storytelling develops and we think about these immortal figures. Like, yeah, they would kind of perv it up every now and then if they're really these timeless figures and, you know, I'm not knocking them for it. It's just a lot of this feels very soap opera-y not like in a bad way, in a Shakespearean way.
0: Yeah, like in the in the same Star Warsian kind of soap opera, sci-fi, magical, eternal epic. Yeah,
5: yeah. Well, and the great myths too. I mean, like the gods had dalliances mm. with mortals all the time. And, you know, their stories were in their own ways, like the soap operas of the era. It was these, you know, the goings on and the dramas and the tragedies of these epic characters. And I think yes. in a lot of ways, superhero comics in general reflect that.
2: I feel like Eternals more so than even other soap comics often lends itself to not like soap opera. So much as like the high opera.
3: Yeah,
2: I don't mean it's like better. I just mean like opera opera in that, you know, it's often about these powerful figures having these emotional intrigues among each other for power or for status representation. Mm -hmm. And like that's all the Eternals have outside of their job. And all they have is each other. And something that really lends itself to that is that we have a cast that's entirely archetypes, right? Like they they are mythical and gods are often confused with them. And that's because they are each like one thing, really like you know Icarus is an arrow Druig is a snake Kingo is a mask they are all embodying a role a function as the you know angel robots that they are for their space gods but like if those things are constant and fundamental and unchanging the the thing about the Eternals is that they are the unchanging people as opposed to the Deviants like that leads to an infinite over time number of combinations of their personality traits and their roles affecting one another and it just it feels like soap opera math you know like it one thing will follow from another it will each eternal is so aware of this so hyper aware of their natures that they know how other eternals are going to behave in response to their actions so they can prepare ever more cunning intrigues to counteract those it's it's very fun it's very interesting i can tell that kieran Gillen is having the time of his life with it
0: and i bet that that's why so many writers love to put the eternals in positions where they kind of don't remember who they are because what an eternal is is so defined in who they are archetypally that we need to see them have personal evolution through other means at times and I would think that that's probably why so much Eternals storytelling involves that period where they're not sure who they are and as it comes together I mean I just want to thank everybody who worked on this book but especially Matthew Wilson for and it sounds so stupid but like Sprite is the color of Sprite and like it is it's so dumb but like there's something about the richness of it the warmth the bubbliness that it actually comes. In my head. It's silly, but even the color work kind of reflects things about the elements of the personality. Icarus is in these bold, definitive, solid prime colors, and there is so much about this book that is so multi layered to reflect their multi layered
4: selves. I think one of the really interesting things about the Eternals as contrasted to a lot of other Marvel characters and teams and properties, you know, when we look at the X Men, and like I mean, like this group of people, like when a lot of queer people look at the X-Men, they see themselves reflected in the X-Men experience. When disabled people look at the X-Men, they see themselves reflected in the X-Men experience. A lot of kids see themselves as like a Spider-Man type. Like they're just a kid trying to make it through the day. There are a lot of characters in the Marvel Universe that people look at and go, their experience is like mine. It's heightened, it's different, of course. That's why this is a story. But like, I see myself in them. I think it is really difficult to see yourself in the Eternals in any way. To identify them with them in some way where you're like this is totally my life just like waking up having to defend this earth with my magical body and some of my friends are really evil and we all have sex with each other machine problems yeah Yeah. exactly it's just like these this is so not relatable and yet at the same time it's not written to be relatable it is written to be a drama that you look at from the outside and just stare at in slack-jawed awe because it is these larger-than-life characters that could never be anything like you And for Marvel that does so much world outside your window stuff, this is a really good piece of a broad tapestry that gives the audience a lot of different facets.
1: I love that it's so larger than life. It's a fucking Greek tragedy. I mean, it's like one of these classic stories. Yeah, you're not supposed to see yourself in, but like still telling you all of these morality tales at the same time. And it's so epic and engaging and amazing. And the art just like shines on this level that matches the epicness of the storytelling that it just all worked so well
2: these characters and their lives and their drama and the things that they do are so like separated and heightened and above the petty dramas that unfold on earth even among the superheroes in that way like one of the consistently funniest things about reading eternals for me especially this only death is eternal story is how often (laughs) It seems that the Earth is in danger of completely being destroyed without any of the superheroes being made aware of it. Like, it's not even like the Eternals are definitely keeping the fact that Thanos is just running around on Earth, <laughs> fucking up the planet, like, seriously, from the Avengers. Like, yes, they are keeping that from them, but they don't have to be. The Avengers are just not aware of this. This is something going on above and beyond them. Like, as much as the Avengers and the X Men stop world ending threats, talk to the universal entities, gods, and monsters all the time, there is still a layer that is celestial like literally celestial in it that is just above their pay grade and this story takes place in that space i think that's really cool yeah the planet almost was destroyed and there was like heavy storms and like basically every superhero on earth was completely unaware of the problem because the eternals are taking care of this internally which is what they do that is their function to do it they are constantly just maintaining this extremely precarious thing and it adds this sense of just like absolute helplessness (laughs) To the planet, but also this like comforting idea that there are these angels who are out there looking out for you, even if you don't know that they're doing the work. And I think that that idea is echoed constantly throughout this first arc, especially when Icarus first meets Tony Robson says like, you know, there are guardian angels on this earth and today I'm yours. What an amazingly powerful thing to say to a little boy. (laughs)
5: Well, this idea too that, like, the world is saturated with threat and not every superhero team can keep tabs on everything all at once speaks really true to what Earth in the 616 is. Just to make a broad connection, it's something that I've seen uh, complained about with the Moon Knight series is that all the things that are happening there couldn't possibly happen if you've got, like, people who are watching out. It's like, well, no, events are going on everywhere and you can't have your eye on everything. It's one of the opportunities of having so many characters to tell these stories with that you have these things that need resolving and need to put someone there to resolve it.
3: I think I've seen that going back even further than Moon Knight, though, and I really agree with what you're saying, because that is something that has always been present in my mind when it comes to people being like, well, why didn't Spider-Man just call this guy, or why didn't Captain America call so-and-so? It's like, well, among other things, because these heroes are very stubborn and proud, and frequently want to deal with their problems themselves, but also these things are frequently happening very fast. A lot of these movies are happening within, like, a 48-hour period. You don't necessarily have time to slow down and get someone else's attention, have them come help you. You don't know what they have going on over where they are. That is the point of it being such a wide and interconnected world that you can have people interact more, which we're going to be seeing in Thor 4 More Thor, which is great, but also that's not a requirement and it's not necessarily something that you can always lean on either. These people have their own lives and are all dealing with their own shit, no different from
5: the way the actual world works. We were talking about how this series feels like an outside looking in, like watching these great figures move and take action and interact and and have their drama. And I think that it's really grounded in the narrative voice of the machine, the broken machine that's really funny and watches Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Which is our lives. Is that a broken machine? (laughs) Yeah, that's this whole show's life. It makes the whole thing so much more approachable, having a narrator who looks at what's going on with you and is like, yeah, isn't this fucking ridiculous? And yet at the same time, it is a machine that is
4: basically woven into the fiber of the planet that we're on that no humans know about, and probably a lot of the heroes don't even know about. So you have this moment of being like, this is going on in the background the whole time. Nobody has any idea, and this is my narrator and like my perception of how this whole thing is going down. It's both really alienating and because it's such a funny voice, it really brings you into the story.
0: And, you know, to get into that story for a moment, I think one of the most powerful devices that they employed as a creative team to get the ball rolling on the sense of drama in Eternals number one and two, that really very connective opening two issues, I think by having it be Icarus, Sprite and Thanos as our sort of most main board pieces, as exactly as we have been saying that sort of archetype really rises to the surface and there's a sense of perfectly aligned mythical figures we have you know Icarus who is just the goodest gooder from sort of an outside perspective Thanos who just wants to kill he just why are you stopping him from killing and one of the things I appreciate is Sprite does also seem to represent kind of a personification of the confusion we would experience being thrust into this situation especially early on on in the story how did everybody feel about the construction of specific eternals that they used to get the ball rolling on the story
2: i thought that was extremely cool and i would even go you one further i don't know how icarus is written in a lot of previous stuff but i would argue that he is not the goodest gooder here he is very explicitly a weapon like agreed how Karen gillen says that he's an arrow when he's talked about as like a hero when they say because icarus is a hero he does this I don't ever think that he's saying like a hero in the Superman sense. I think he's saying a hero in like the Heracles sense, you know, like a classical Greek hero. He's a man who gets things done. He is the arrow that flies straight and true. He is a weapon to be used and that delights in the use of himself. Like the most beautiful moment for me of Icarus in this is when he like flies straight to the South Pole and he just flies into space. The narration is like, yeah, it's beautiful. It's graceful. But for Icarus, it is just simply what he does positioning him like that and positioning Sprite, who is, yes, colored the color of a can of Sprite soda, but is also the exact colors of Marvel Comics Loki, who is a nearly identical mm. character to Sprite in a lot of ways in color terms color. of their role in eternal society. And also like the fact that like Sprite is like essentially a pseudonym of, of Loki. They both fulfill that trickster role as like a younger sibling to Icarus, who in this case is recast more as like a Thor figure, but like a Viking Thor figure more than like the superheroic Thor figure. Not only are they all archetypes, but they also echo other archetypes when they're paired together. So when Icarus and Sprite are together, they are like Thor and Loki going out to take on this massive evil that is world ending. And when other Eternals are paired together in different combinations, they produce yet more echoes from history, from classical contexts, and just from like regular superhero tropes. I thought that was like a really clever way to open this up because it made me think about these two Eternals specifically in a way that I never previously. Same, same exact, like that's how I- I felt too.
4: And at the same time, the really important part of the journey that they go through is encountering the other Eternals and sort of giving us our initial glimpse into the inner workings of Eternal society, whether it be Zerus as a leader, whether it be Druig as an instigator, whether it be Cersei as kind of a morally ambiguous, sexy pot stirrer. We're getting glimpses of all of these relationships in a way that is sort of just reminding you, like, bookmark this, this is important. But, you know, again, as you say, in this in these first two issues, we're really primarily focused on, you know, the return of Sprite and Icarus, the fact that Thanos is there and what are we going to do about this? But as we deal with that specific plot line, the book is putting out tendrils into the eternal world that we are meant to start to link to and identify as part of a much larger picture. And it's done really well such that it never overwhelms a primary story, but it gives you a lot to think about and work with and start to pay attention to for getting a broader picture.
2: Yeah, this is a Cersei that I have never seen before. This is such an interesting Cersei to me. I feel like I have recontextualized everything I ever read when I was a kid about Cersei because now I look at that and I say, this is how Cersei is presenting to Iron Man. This is how Cersei is presenting to Dane Whitman, to these petty humans that she likes toying around with. And now I feel like I've never known Cersei. I've only known the face she's been presenting to the Avengers for some fun.
1: Yeah, that's like exactly what I was like thinking of with Cersei. I was like, "Oh my god!" Like we always get presented the fun party girl, but we never really get to see what's behind the mask. And just seeing how complicated she is and how like fucking smart.
2: If I can make this about Mahal and drive like I usually try to do, is feels like the Cersei in Avengers is like Naomi Watts at the beginning of the movie when she's just a happy go lucky, naive debuting Hollywood talent, and then the switch towards the end where it's revealed that she's Naomi Watts, extremely talented actress and (laughs) a lot more going on than you ever suspected it it feels like that
5: yeah yeah she's so fucking complicated i love it ah well it makes the resetting the forgetting that gillen builds into the system it recontextualizes all of these appearances in the sense that like you get a fresh eternal with every era of the eternally sea avengers cersei she's given just enough memory and knowledge of her function and influence to be that character Gaiman cersei i think she was a party planner before she got woken up again. And this one is, you know, fully aware of who she is, fully aware of her power, fully aware of her craftiness. And so in some ways, it's the most Cersei Cersei that we've ever seen because she's given access to this full interiority of self. So, you know, there are other Eternals in this. These stories are so rich and they're so full
0: of such spectacular nuance. I think one of the things that Kieran Gillen is best known for is creating a whole character in a line and you know everything about that character from this one sentence and I think that Kieran Gillen gets such exquisite partnerships going where the art tells so much of the story I feel like the Thanos that is presented in these early pages and then especially throughout the arc continuing on Kevo as like you said I feel like as a guy who's read a lot of Thanos like not like I oh I've read all the Thanos like no he just shows up a lot and so like I've read a lot of Thanos and I I really get him better now
2: this thanos is uh awesome <laughs> yeah i've also read quite a lot of thanos and he runs the range from an interesting master manipulator to a pathetic egotist to no yes yeah, seriously grimace in a glove seriously yeah, grimace in a glove occasionally <gasps> and in this series he's more like extremely refined art critic self-styled poet of violence Somebody who thinks intricately about apparently the aesthetics of murder, it makes him hotter. It makes him way more interesting than he has often been. And it also gives him like this cold, scary intensity. If he's thinking about like the poetry of the violence of the act while he's killing you and he's killing you, then his mind is somewhere else. Like he's not even bringing to bear his full real attention on you. He's waxing philosophical and composing in his mind. And that honestly somehow makes him more frightening to me
1: yeah this is not the grimace thanos with the thanos copter no this is like when he's talking about when he's called a murderer and he's like huh i'm not a murderer like he's almost like a conductor conducting an orchestra full of death and it's just beautiful the way
2: he thinks of it. Yeah, Nico, you also said that there are other Eternals Which I kind of want to get into that We now know the names of all the Eternals Because Kieran Gillen wrote them out And then he flips that so hard on us When he's like, oh, also here's the names of all of the Deviants Or at least like seven pages out of 10,000 And just writing that out Just giving the sheer scale of that I tried to read every name on that list and I failed But between trying to read every name on that list and failing And then like knowing that there's so much more And so much more and so much more It humanizes the Deviants in a way that I have never seen before This series specifically brings so much humanity and individuality to the lives of the Deviants. It is very sympathetic, heavy emphasis on the humanity of the Deviants.
0: I think one of the things that is so unbelievable about the number of Eternals and Deviants listed is somehow Kieran Gillen manages to keep it from feeling like a yearbook special or a phone book. It provides the promise.
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it mostly just washes over you with the impact of like the diversity of their people.
0: Yeah, it's so powerful, and I also really find the depth that's provided to a number of the Eternals in small ways really clever. Every word of Druig is painfully telling, even the ones that are nonsense.
4: And I think we get a view of Thena that's unlike anything we've ever seen before, and it's tragic and beautiful, and the fact that they really do a lot to kind of link her up with Angelina. Jolie's character in the movie and give her that almost exact same look where she just really is this like warrior goddess but what we're seeing of her is like a lover, unapologetic unabashed lover and the way that that begins to fold into the story of the humanity of the deviants is such a good piece of connective tissue because she really is one of the iconic recognizable ones especially right now and so to use her as that journey into the the reality of how deviant life is and how the deviants and the eternals interact and to not just have her be like the awesome fighty girl is just really good good storytelling
5: well, and Gillen is being extremely additive here. He is germinating seeds that have been planted for decades. With some of these characters, we've known that the deviants are living in a human-like culture and society. They, you know, they founded the city of Lemuria. You know, you see stories about them expressing great, like, great emotion and great passion and great what we would call humanity. And we've seen stories in the past where Athena falls in love with with a deviant, where she has this long romantic relationship with a deviant, despite the objections of her people. Like, Gillen is really taking these elements and using them to give us a a new way of looking at the lives of Deviants, looking at the lives of the Eternals, looking at their interiority, at the same time pulling back the lens on this grand conflict that's been unfolding, you know, the history of the world.
2: I love speaking of Athena as, like, a lover and as a deeply romantic and emotional person. I love that this is another Eternals pairing that teaches us more about both of them, is the contrast between her and Cersei in their approach to love and humans. Like, Thena is a romantic. She's deeply in love. She loves deeply. And it's something that gives her life. It's something that really, like, pushes her forward. It's it's a very important part of her character and who she is. And Cersei is, like, the opposite, right? Cersei is well-known for her dalliance with humans. But that's just sex. That's just fun. That's just playing around most of the time. Even with Dane, she was mostly just, like, torturing him a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. It's amazing to see, like, how, like, Cersei looks at the lifespans of humans and deviants and looks at her own and says, like well then I, I just have to close myself off I just have to remember that they're only playthings things for me and never get involved but Thena takes that as I need to express this love as deeply as I can I need to enjoy it while I have it and I need to live as much as I can and be present with them and you know that's it's tragic that they won't live as long and it's especially tragic in the case of Tolau. but like it's worth it to her it, after all this time it's still worth it to her to keep reconnecting and to keep finding that spark and that joy in other people and that's like that's something things so beautiful and so hopeful especially in stories and stories and stories about immortal characters or long lived characters who just have this nihilism and ennui after a long time to have this one character who says like hey I've lived just as long as all of them and for me it still matters every time you know
5: so um for you guys who have read more Eternals stuff than I definitely have have the Eternals come into conflict with Thanos before outside of like AU stuff
1: oh yeah oh yeah
5: yeah this is this is standard canon
0: for them at this point point.
4: Although the one thing I feel like is really special about this is I feel like a lot of the time when Eternals come up with Thanos, it is Thanos is doing a big Thanos story. The Eternals come in because there is a background connection. And this story does something. I don't know. The quality of it is just really different. This is really a family fight. This is acknowledging Thanos's role as an Eternal, not just as this like godlike force in the Marvel universe, but specifically as a part of this really complicated godlike family and them finally having these much more deep interactions with him where they deal with how his presence among their kind what it says about them very broadly and their mission.
1: Exactly like what you're saying, TK. Like it it really brings Thanos in. Because I mean Thanos is eternal. Like I mean he is of that Titan colony. So like I think there was so much separation before because of the Titan and Earth colonies. And I think for a lot of us readers we didn't really have all of the pieces at the point because when you're following of Eternals through Avengers just randomly here and there you're, you're not going to always pick up on that full story on it so I love seeing it conceptualized here in this, in this big book where I can see it beautifully done beautifully laid out everything's tied together this almost feels to me like the Eternals House of X like that's very much you know I have a reconceptualized vision of what the Eternals are now whereas before it was kind of loose and all over the place but now we've got a a firm direction they're going we've got some exciting you know subterfuge that they have to do among the humans you know you get a really strong separation of what an Eternal is versus what a human is versus what a mutant is so I I love the direction it set it up it set up a lore and a story in a way that I want to keep reading
0: it yeah yeah really is and you know i think the idea of calling it like house of xing them yeah i get it because it's not so much that like i don't want to say that there's been sort of like a a willy-nilly kind of eternal schmernels kind of attitude for a little while because as much as i am a fan of of aaron's avengers because my whole thing is it toes the line of the marvel universe i don't know how much is like uniquely designed stories so much as they're like well now we're gonna do a you live in a celestial and um the eternals are gonna die in one panel and it's gonna It'd be really unfulfilling. And that is definitely a failing of that first arc. And the work done here to sort of retreat the Eternals with respect as one of, you know, like the great kirby still in the Marvel Universe. You know, everybody's all a gaga over, and by everybody I mean me, is all a gaga over Miracle Man coming to the Marvel Universe. But, you know, look at the Miracle Men that have been lingering in the background just waiting for their moment.
2: I think you're spot on with that comparison about jumping out of Jason Aaron's uh, Avengers run and turning it into gold. And I think that's something that's happening more and more often. As not hot as I am on Jason Aaron's Avengers run, there have been a lot of great fruit coming from it. Between this and Moon Knight, they're both stories that reevaluate and rehabilitate the characters after the traumatic event of going through Jason Aaron's Avengers run in an arc. They come out the other side and then they give it to somebody and then they just turn it into something absolutely precious. And I don't know, maybe maybe that'll be the uh, legacy of this very long Avengers run.
5: I totally agree that this new run does feel like a bit of a soft reboot in the sense that like we're given so much data, so much history, so many so many points of history that it's like these are the things that you need to know, these are the things that you need to remember. The rest of it we can kind of hand wave, but if you want to think about it in your headcanon, you can think about it in your headcanon. Like it feels like we're, you know, we're being given the complete history of the Celestials integrative now. And that's gonna continue to be woven more deeply into. To the, the fabric of the present ongoings of the Marvel universe that are going to be made more important, especially through these summer events coming up.
4: It definitely feels like they are solidly trying to create the this corner of the Marvel universe. You know, I often talk about like the Hell's Kitchen corner, the Krakoa corner, like these places, these settings, these characters that you get that are associated with one era, and you can do whole events in Hell's Kitchen. They just did Devil's Reign. And there's so many characters that you can expect to be a part of it, and you kind of understand the general, like actual physical locations. It seems like this book is really trying to set that for the Eternals. And by issue six, it's plausible to me that you start spinning off books from here. It doesn't happen, but I hope it does, that we start to see solo series or a different kind of team book, like, you know, a specific action team of some kind. This really is firmly setting up the Eternals corner of the universe to be something that can be accessible long term.
3: I definitely see, you know, the way everyone does where this is like a nice reboot slash launching on point. This gives a lot of history of the Eternals and really sets up a lot of the characters. Obviously, based on the characters they chose, a lot of this is to line up with the movies as well. One of the things that most threw me from that perspective, however, is the completely different characterization of Druig from what I felt like we got in the film. We spoke you know, about how Cersei and Athena's characterizations compared, but I really felt like the Druig that was in this arc is almost a completely different character from the film I think apart from the scene in the village where we see him using his powers the Druig that we got in the movie felt a lot like more of a Dylan McKay from 90210 where like he's brooding and wearing leather jackets and kind of flirty and and
4: it hurts to look at things
3: he's bad but like he's gonna do the right thing whereas hurts to look this at druid, things as
4: Jordan Catalano Nico
3: I, I know what that I out said there. he knows what he
2: said I know what I said yeah he's not hot in the comics he's hot in the movie we get it <laughs>
3: (laughs) but like you know we we compared uh sprite to loki earlier based on a lot of her characterization and her you know trickery and and her color palette and everything and it feels like either of those characters could really be the loki type figure and i just was wondering what everyone else makes of the more um the guy who's playing druig has a good body so let's lean into that in the movie characterization of druig versus what we got in this the comics version.
2: I like that in the movie because I feel like it's an on-purpose twist that you're not expecting. If you've read Eternals comics, you're expecting Druid to be the traitor, and so was I. And if you've watched western media, then you know that they usually default to having the straight white extremely hot dude who is like just a, you know, kind of like a cookie cutter Chad to be the hero when he ends up being the guy who had betrayed them all along, Icarus in that movie. I think the Icarus and Druig portrayals were necessarily changed in order to pull that neat little trick of defying the expectations of the viewer maybe. It worked for me. I definitely did not expect Druig to be like actually really cool, maybe have like a pretty sick relationship with Makari, Sick in a good way.
5: I don't know. I really liked the characterizations of the movie Eternals as as beings who who were capable of great love and compassion for their charges, and that for Druig, watching this species that he had watched over for millennia, destroy each other, you know, he, he represented this political pole of how eternal should be saying, you know, we should interfere, we should stop them, we have the power, and we ought to use it. But coming from a place of like, we want to protect our children from themselves, kind of. And because the mission is different in the comics, because the, the Druig's like history of conflict is different, it makes sense that their characterizations would be would be substantially different, especially given the like, you know, the different natures of the, the role. Like they're not really protectors of humanity. Well, they don't even see themselves. They've never really seen themselves as protectors of humanity until recently in the comics.
4: It does sort of surprise me though only because we get the pretty significant standout effort to uh, remake Sprite to more closely align with movie Sprite. They specifically change her gender and they mention that that's the thing that Eternals can do when they resurrect and reboot, which is totally cool. I love it. I was surprised that we got a Druig that was so completely divorced from the movie character in terms of look, in terms of motivation. It seems like the need to have a member of the group that can be, you know, tied to Thanos and just generally be the problematic one that they all love but is just making it so difficult and is participating in antagonism half the time. You know, it's got to be Druig. It's always been Druig and this is kind of part of the story that they're constantly going through. It's the way that Logan's always got to be the one that sacrifices himself to stop the bad thing from hurting the X-Men. He's the best at what he does. Druig does have a little bit of that iconography to him where he's got to be the betrayer. And what we know is coming up in Judgment Day, it feels like the seeds are just planted very early for him to play this problematic role amongst this family.
0: So I want to point out one of the other really great features about this comic for a moment. The data pages. Oh, they make me so hot. And they're beautiful black and blue Tronity goodness. They're just so sexy and so good. And I think my two favorites are probably in issue six by far. Just, I thought the eternal conscious model page that ends in TLDR, eternal core identity is hardware, eternal memories are software, could sum up like a third of the book and then the glitchy machine page I think is just what my heart looks like. So I felt very seen in a really, like, ah, the data pages are the height of good data pages in an era marked by good data pages.
4: Yeah, I was very glad they didn't shy away from it. I was kind of curious because I knew what was coming with this title overall and how this was going to kind of be like a a House of X reboot for the Eternals and really kind of a reshuffling. I wondered about data pages from the beginning because they were so successful in getting us kind of necessary information in the X-Men that there would just be no way to get on page and like, you know, have enough page space for the actual comic book. So I love that they didn't shy away from it here, that they did their own style of data page, that they really found a voice that is completely different from any of the ones we're getting in the X-Men. But it gives us a lot of what we need to get our hooks into this corner of the Marvel Universe and make it established.
1: Yeah, the continued use of the data page was amazing. But having the data page have its own personality and in effect becoming an unreliable narrator is just, it's even better. It's more, it's like... So you got to sometimes
5: wonder if you can trust the information that is coming to you. As a tool, I really appreciate how they kind of offer this compromise in the exposition. There's been that principle at Marvel for the longest time of, you know, every issue could be someone's first, so make it accessible. They bring in a lot of necessary context to help, help a new reader connect to the story and, and see how the story connects to the greater universe. And within the context of this trade, certainly, the data pages offer that connectivity and offer that like look backward towards stories that have already been written. And I think that's what they're doing at their best, without having to like beat us over the head with expository dialogue of what came before, and you know that kind of inorganic
2: storytelling. If literally any other current Marvel Comics writer wrote caption boxes that said, Ooh, I'm so kooky. Ooh, I'm so quirky. Isn't that weird? I would hate it. I would absolutely throw it in the trash. But somehow it works here, and it works extremely well. And it works because it's part of the narrative, you know? And also because... Karen Gillen is really funny with that.
0: This does bring us to, you know, the bummer that I think is one of the things that, as I was reading this, and of course there's all of these parallels between the Eternals don't stay dead and now the X-Men don't stay dead. No, nobody's staying dead. It's the Marvel Universe. You can only stay dead if your name is Uncle Ben or Karen Page. So, for me, the heartbreaking reveal and the way it dynamically transforms Icarus's definition of what an Eternal is so brilliantly played against the X-Men Expectations somebody might have come in with from the film, but separately takes an idea that has long been rooted in Kirby fantasy. And Kirby fantasy is a beautiful, wonderful thing and it has its own set of rules, but this was finessing it into a morally complicated Marvel universe. And it took the parallels between the X-Men in and Rebirth and the Eternals in Rebirth and created a very different identity for me as a reader. I now have a different opinion 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 of everyone and everything and it made choices for eternal characters matter again it was a transformative read for me at that point in the series
5: honestly i picked this up when it was first running and i was reading about the resurrection thing and i was just like well this is just they're just doing this over in house of x powers of 10 right now what why would they have two stories about like a people in the red like this all feels too similar and so i put down eternals and you know decided like let's let the story develop a little bit because it, it feels redundant and I was very very happy to pick it up again and to read it through and to see you know to understand that the consequences the functionality the like shaping philosophy as a result are entirely different and I think you're right it introduces this element of consequences matter because if an eternal comes back it's a sacrifice it raises stakes it forces you to have to be more gentle I can't remember if it's in this run of six but eventually Icarus has to learn how to dodge and he's like dodging what's that? It's just such a, it's, it's a reshaping of how these beings have to act in the world if they intend to continue defending humanity, if they intend to hang on to that as part of their role and identity.
2: I love that you mentioned that, like, they have to learn how to dodge now. We early, very early on got the whole thing where, like, you know, Icarus doesn't see a difference between windows and walls because he can see through both and windows are very new. <laughs> so I just, setting that up in, in advance, so far in advance, as, like, the exact mindset that they're going to have to try to change makes it seem like a staggering task
1: i love how it gives consequences to this magical thing that you know we haven't seen as much of a consequence within the x-men right we had some with the resurrection protocols we were like oh cool are they losing parts of themselves and turns out they were because onslaught was eating them but like that was only a little bit like but these are actual like some real real world consequences in the comic universe adds a so many layers to what we knew about Cersei that she already knew about this, and she's just quite okay with it. <laughs> she's just like, okay, whatever. You know, I still I still gotta come back and fuck the humans <laughs> before they die. So, like, I love the layers it added to it. I love the idea that the Unimind is not going to go for the abolition of resurrecting themselves because they don't really fucking care. And it sets <laughs> up a cool mythos difference between, I, I think that was something that I needed, like a like a morality difference between the Eternals and the Inhumans. And I really think that sets them up as totally different entities, whereas at times in my past, I used to get them confused because
4: they're kind of a little similar. And I think we're seeing that this is all heading towards something. You know, the idea that the X-Men and the Eternals are both dealing with resurrection at the same time, and how that's going to dovetail into the conflict in Judgment Day. You know, it's a really good payoff for something that when you, you know, as Jake when you see it on paper, it's just like, oh, they're just doing the exact same thing the X Men are doing. I, I don't care. But A, they found a way to explore it really differently. And then B, it seems like they're kind of acknowledging that these are a similar issue that they're both exploring. And therefore, it has to come to a head within the Marvel Universe that these two groups will confront each other. And the resurrection protocols for both will be a part of that confrontation. It's all paying off really beautifully.
2: Yeah. It also feels like a distant warning from the future. Like this is. Is what the immortal X-Men could become if they're around for long enough, like basically robotic archetypes in some ways, because the Eternals have the unfortunate issue of whenever they get too emotional or act up too much, then the higher-ups just, like, erase their minds, reset them to factory defaults and roll back their personalities, and like, that's absolutely a thing that is within Xavier's power, and he has little to no accountability, nor does anybody else in the council. So, reading the Eternals here, it's like, I just see, like, this is what the X-Men could become if they're not extremely careful careful
1: and i love how it sets up a natural confrontation between the two even without the existence of like oh they're calling themselves gods we're calling ourselves gods but you know like one of the x-men's core like the one of the three laws of krakoa is kill no human and the eternals by their existence and every time they are reborn they kill a human so like it's just setting them up for like huge conflict
3: and i really like the way that Gillen mirrored it with the earlier flashback story with icarus and the the boy with the beacon whose life he felt that he took and the way that they pay that off with the reveal about Toby I think the one thing that really pulled me out of the story and the emotional impact though is I don't get why Toby looked exactly like sprite like is that just me i no, think
4: it, it, the one thing yeah. I will say is you said Ribik's younger character drawings maybe sort of miss the mark for me some of the time but I do agree with you there's there's a similarity amongst those two specifically that I think is just kind of like a visual shorthand that may Maybe never got quite sorted out.
2: Esad does not throw a lot of variation into his faces. And in fact, his faces often put off a lot of new readers. Like there are people who don't like his art because of the way he draws faces. And uh, I can understand that. But I think that there's so much more going on with the bodies and figures and designs and backgrounds that I'm always willing to overlook it. But that is completely fair that like two kids are going to look pretty much like the same character. Two adult men are going to look mostly identical if they're, you know, drawn with similar skin tones or hair length. So that's always going to be a thing, I think, with the Sutter art, or at least he, he seems to put far more emphasis into like the world building aspects, the design and the figure drawings.
0: I super agree to the point where I actually love the parallels it creates between both Thanos and Icarus's faces. They yeah. have so many structural elements in common in a way that really creates masks of these two super gods in opposition. It's such a great way that a master of their craft uses an element of their own style in such an effective storytelling way
3: i really see what you mean especially when icarus's face is bashed in and all bruised like you very much can almost see thanos in his face
4: And I think you get similar moments with uh, Fastos and Thanos as well. I mean, it's just, you know, he's drawing this godlike family and they are all kind of cut from the same cloth. They're all coming out of the same system. And it even ends up going so deep as like all these characters are united and therefore are going to have kind of a similar look to them. It's much more about the broad tapestry that is woven as opposed to really focusing on individual details a lot of the time.
2: Yeah, and when he does focus on individual details, it is always for that parallel, like you guys said. That scene towards the end with Fastos and Thanos, when they're going back to Fastos putting Thanos' heart together, you know? There's two panels, and they're opposite each other, where Fastos and Thanos look like they have extremely similar bones underneath their faces. They have extremely similar brows furrowed and looking at each other, but then it follows it up with that extremely detailed panel underneath of Thanos with his finger under his nose, trying not to smile at how he thinks he's the smartest one in the room when they both do.
4: That's exactly what I was talking about when I... That's the, exactly the panel that I was looking at when nice. I started talking about them. It's, it's gorgeous. So,
2: yeah, it's extremely beautiful. It's one of, one of my favorite panels of Thanos at this point.
4: And I guess in that regard, there's
3: something to be said for the emotional effect of making so many characters look similar. It makes you really feel like they are, you know, all one people. And in that way, you know, Toby is just like Sprite, but Toby's the one that we lost. It's just if you don't make the characters different enough... It it can kind of be confusing for the brain.
2: It's kind of ironically hilarious in that, like, Icarus also didn't realize that the boy he saw in his vision was not the boy he saw, but the boys he saw his grandson, who they all look pretty much identical to Icarus and <laughs> as the reader. And probably it's the same That's for the, the boys looking at Icarus and his cousins, like... <laughs> It's very funny how that echoes down where he just like completely was like, oh, you're not the, oh.
0: Well, I have had such an incredible time talking in part about this first arc. There's just so much. It's impossible to talk about it all. And it's so amazing because I have a feeling parts of this first arc are going to come up as we continue to discuss the series. Now, we're trying to run a pretty tight ship to make sure that we get the entirety of this volume out before the series concludes and kind of dovetails into acts. So we, next time, are going to take a look at the three one-shots that are contributing to this run of Eternals before we come back to discuss the final volume, 7 through 12. So this way we can kind of talk about all of it and make sure it's out before the crossover begins, hopefully helping all of our readers and listeners best prepare for the upcoming event. Now, before we go, I want to ask everybody if there was either a data page or a moment moment, a panel, something that truly transformed this book for you. I think for me, at the end of the day, it really does come back to the tongue-in-cheek text boxes throughout the series as such a major function of the storytelling. The, The playfulness that the narration allowed the reader amidst these horrifying sequences gave me as a reader a way to compartmentalize the horror and experience this and feel like there was somebody on my side i don't know if everybody else felt that way about the narration like it was a buddy but i would love to know if there was one thing about this book that's just gonna stick with you forever and i know sometimes it's got to be two things (laughs) i get it
1: i would say the obvious thing that when i was reading it i didn't realize it was leading up to this but when it did i was like oh holy shit and it really made me take a like a moira mctaggart like house of x2 look at it was the obvious moment where we find out that kind of powers their resurrection? I was mortified that I hadn't figured it out up to that point, and I was horrified for all of the heroes and the repercussions of it. I mean, especially like Gilgamesh, like you know, like his realization after he realizes what it is is horrifying. That was the standout moment for me.
2: I also really love that moment. That is absolutely phenomenal to have that final reveal. I mentioned earlier the guardian angels lines from Icarus, and those do stick out to me. But actually. Like the, the moment where I really grasped like both his character and Thanos is during their first fight, because there's a little bit of narration there that just like completely wowed me. It was extremely thrilling, where Sprite is like, oh, bad. No, this is bad. This is bad, which is a normal reaction to Thanos. And then Icarus's first reaction is, no, it's not bad. It's good. I've never fought Thanos. He's just like so excited. I loved, that. I loved it so much. <laughs> it's like super terrifying, but he's like, finally, I get a chance to do the thing I do, which is kill Thanos. Like, that's a thing I gotta do. That's a thing I do And Thanos' response just like starts off with him doing the thing back, you know, his fellow poet of Annihilation. Fantastic. Let us trade verse like he's Klingon like in how he's rhapsodizing about the violence that's about to happen. They're both extremely horny for this fight. And it made me kind of like click with both of their characterizations in the series.
5: I think for me the biggest standout moment was the scene where Thanos is strapped down to the table with his chest open and his heart showing. The color contrast alone is really powerful. The like that center of red against all those like sort of paler blues and purples. And it's just there's something so eerie about seeing this like godlike being put in such a vulnerable position, the position of having to be rescued and resurrected. And then, like strapped in his resurrection, chained in his resurrection, it kind of gives you a sense of just how powerful the Eternals can be. And you know, I don't know. I'd never really thought about it in those terms. They could, they can chain Thanos, not for long, but they can do it. Yeah, that was that was definitely a, a changing a changing moment for me. It's two. The first one is Thena
4: in issue three, with tears rolling down her face, saying, "I will never love another deviant." That was a moment in which I just understood that this this was a high drama almost in some ways it's like almost really campy in the best possible way but this is such a dramatic book and when it's when the art is just rendered beautifully again it's like it's like a myth and it's beautiful to read and then pulling it all the way back to the other side of things Cersei meeting with Tony Stark and just kind of reminding us of the history of this character as a more grounded character in the Marvel Universe and one we didn't necessarily see as being a mythical godlike creature to remind us that the Eternals have played that role, but we're in this story now and they're playing a very different role and we're seeing them act at a much different level. Um, These were the two kind of binding moments in which I got what I was going to be looking for in this book and kind of, I don't want to say identifying with, because again, I don't identify with it, but I love reading it.
3: I think for me, like I mentioned earlier, and like a few people have already said, a lot of Thanos stuff really stuck out at me. I also really loved the art of the uh, exposed heart scene. And I think a lot of the characterization uh, is really interesting, especially because so much of pop culture due to the films is, you know, people out there saying Thanos was right. So it was really nice to see a characterization of them being like, no, he's just a friggin murderer. Murderer, And he's a murder guy, and he just likes to kill, and he's just out here killing again. So uh that was really fun to see. I want to
0: thank you guys so much for coming out for this amazing trade-waiting coverage of The Eternals 1 through 6. As previously mentioned, I cannot wait to come back, discuss Thanos Rising, Celestia, and The Heretic. Before we return one more time to discuss issues 7 through 12, helping our listeners be as prepared as they can for the upcoming Judgment War, which sees Avengers as X-Men and Eternals, all in hopefully working togetherness against the Celestials, but you know, you just gotta hope...